going to look tonight at Psalm 1 and 2. Before we do, I'm just going to say a little bit about some of the things been going on around us. As some of you know, we produce this little leaflet. Uh, to our Jewish friends and neighbours, which some of you have been giving out, and we've had a lot of response. Quite a few people have been quite touched by receiving it. I can find, I think I don't, can't find it. Anyway, we had some encouraging people writing in. Oh yeah, here we are. I want to thank you for your kind note and support to our Jewish, our, your Jewish neighbours, member of the Orthodox Jewish community. Your note was shared by me in a family WhatsApp group, so you should appreciate how far your kind note went through the community. As a Jewish person in London, I've never felt, never known a time like this. We feel very isolated and afraid for our future here. Voices of hate are very loud and your message of kindness and solidarity comes as a welcome relief. Thank you for not staying silent and as many seem to be doing and for speaking up, showing your support for your Jewish neighbors at this difficult time with prayer for lasting peace soon. So it's encouraging. We've had one, quite a few letters coming in. Uh, some, well, Shirley who comes to our evening meetings, she's not here tonight, but she said, I've distributed the letter to all my Jewish friends and members of my two Hebrew classes. Without exception, they were deeply moved to read of our support, even the very secular Jews. So if you want to take any of those, we've got some copies on the table and pass them out, just give them to any Jewish people you know, or even you don't know. And of course, as the person from the area said, Jewish people feel very much under threat at this present time with the voices of hate which are so loud in our society. And I just want to share a few things about them before we get into it. First of all, we need to notice that they're not just hating Jews, but they're also hating our society and hating us if we believe in Jesus and believe in the state of Israel. I had an opportunity on uh, this week to speak on Revelation TV and to get across some of the uh, points on this matter. Had a bit of approval. I got a bit of approval coming here from <laughs> Kathy and Michael said it was good, so <laughs> I'll leave them to leave you to work out whether it was. But if you haven't seen it, it's on the uh, we put it on the Light for Last Days website, so it's still available there. And I, I, it went well actually. I was able to say quite a lot about Israel and about why the situation's there and give some answers to some of the accusations which are made. And I think uh, you know got the message across. And also we were able to bring in a bit about Bible prophecies and the place of Yeshua in all of this crisis. And I think we have to recognize that we are living in a time of huge anti-Israel uh, things going on. I mean, i just pick a couple of letters, articles here from the paper today. Uh, the demonstrations taking place in London and around the country, you notice them, how peaceful they are and how... Friendly? Well, not quite. Uh, article here says, a mob of pro-Palestinian activists surrounded a senior Labour MP's home yesterday, the offices of Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer. Other politicians who refused to back calls for a Gaza ceasefire were also targeted by protesters. Sir Keir was called a genocide enabler and accused of having blood on his hands. More than 100 pro-Palestine protests were held across Britain yesterday. Protesters targeted a string of stores across Manchester including McDonald's and Starbucks, pro-Palestinian demonstrators assembled outside Downing Street amid an ongoing day of action by activists, 
activists were, had seen the police issue dispersal orders. British Transport Police arrested at least five people at a sit-in in London Waterloo, also sit-ins, protests at London Bridge and Leeds stations. Um, around 300 demonstrators gathered outside Secure Starmer's office in Camden, North London, with a packard saying, blood on your hands. Steve McCabe, the Labour MP for Birmingham Selyok, was forced to flee from furious pro-Palestinian protesters yesterday when they besieged a surgery he was holding inside a church. 350 strong crowd held abuse at him for abstaining in the ceasefire vote at six, as six officers watched the crowd chanted, Steve McCabe, you can't hide, you're supporting genocide. Tried to get away through a side door and jumped into his Porsche SUV, but the crowd ran towards him shouting, shame, shame. And it goes on and on. People have been attacked for their views. Sometimes I wonder when we'll get attacked. Um, <clears throat> another article says here, there have been calls for jihad in British streets. Radical preachers have been recorded describing Jews as filth and usurpers, urging their followers to tear them apart. Constituent officers of MPs have been vandalized with red paint by groups chanting, shame on you. Crime of these individual politicians, some of whom understandably now fear for their families, is not to have voted for the Scottish National Party's motion last Wednesday that called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, and the rise of radical Islamism been facilitated by what Suella Barberman warned about, decades of mass uncontrolled, unassimilated immigration, immigration that has led to the importation of tribal grievances from abroad into British communities. Government has not only failed to deport foreign nationals who openly glorify Islamist terror, but at least one senior Hamas militant has been granted British citizenship as well as social housing and welfare support. Guess where he lives? London Borough Barnet. You know that? Uh, I'm not sure what his name is, but he's, he's living in Collindale in a council flat. Much of this is being enabled by the second big threat, which has also been apparent in the recent weeks, the rise of the radical woke, woke left, whose supporters have joined the marches with the full knowledge that elements within them are endorsing terrorism and anti-Semitism. As in America, the woke left is reshaping society around a divisive and un-British worldview which contends that the country comprises only two competing groups, the morally inferior oppressors, including the white majority, Jews, and basically all Western nations, and the morally superior oppressed minorities, such as Muslims and other chosen minority groups. The woke left argues that our history, identity, and culture are institutionally racist and a source of shame and embarrassment. They said it should not be revised, it should all be revised, sorry, if not fully deconstructed, in other words, overthrown. Overthrown, that's what they want, overthrow of our society. Uh, last, last week there was a, uh, on TikTok, I don't know if you heard about this, but the uh, TikTok, the social media, featured a, so, a post which was actually Osama, written by Osama bin Laden of all people. It's his letter to America in which he justified attacking the United States in 9-11. So it was revived from there. It was put out on TikTok. Millions of people saw it, approved it, and said their lives were changed by reading it. Americans uh, proved, changed by reading what Osama bin Laden wrote, justifying 
the 9-11 killings. Um, it says here, the text of a writing by bin Laden who masterminded the 9-11 atrocities against America was posted by The Guardian, which took it down after the American, anti-American rants started appearing on TikTok. New York Post reported lawmakers from both major parties were criticizing the promotion of the China-owned social media site as terrorist propaganda. This is the important bit. Bin Laden claimed that he set up the deaths of nearly 3,000 on that day in 2001 because the United States was attacking us in Palestine. Us is Bin Laden and his people. That theme has been resurrected in many ways following last month's atrocity-filled terror attack by Hamas from Gaza on Israeli civilians. As is typical with anti-Semitic agendas, Bin Laden claimed the creation of Israel was a crime that must be erased. Large portions of the letter focus on Israel and the Jews. The word Israel appears 19 times. Question which he posed was, why are we fighting and opposing you? The first answer was, you attacked us in Palestine. Al-Qaeda also said the idea that the Jews have historic right to Palestine, as was promised them in the Torah, is one of the most fallacious, widely circulated fabrications in history. He wrote that Muslims superseded Jews as the inheritors of the Torah, and the land therefore belonged to them. And so it goes on attacking the Jews, attacking Israel, and attacking anyone who believes that Israel is there because of what the Bible says, because the Bible has been superseded by the Quran and by Islam. Uh, now, the really, that's not surprising that he said that. What is surprising, what is amazing, is that about a million people in America approved what he said. Not only said that, but they said that their whole perception of reality had been changed by reading it. So apparently... People are so dumb or so ignorant that they can believe this stuff and actually let their minds be changed by reading this kind of propaganda. And we live in a time, unfortunately, when this kind of propaganda is going out all over. Another one here about Islam's subversion of Jesus. Uh, US Muslim influencer uses his young daughters to deceive and attack Christians. Goes on to say how they're putting out very slick and very uh, easy to watch videos which undermine Christianity and make Christians look ridiculous or stupid and tell them that it's all been superseded by Islam. Got about a million followers and spreading rapidly. Uh, goes on to say, well, he says that the Jesus, the true Jesus picture is in the Quran, not in the Bible. Says, while the Jesus of the Quran shares a name beneath the surface, similarity lies a divergence from the biblical figure in the Islamic narrative, Jesus becomes a mere pawn, strategically developed, deployed to refute Christian beliefs and bolster Muhammad's claims. Islam does not respect the Jesus of the Bible, the Christian faith, or its followers. It's hostile to all three. The Islamic doctrine concerning Christians includes hostility, take them not as friends, contempt and hatred. They're the most vile creatures. And jihad, fight those who believe not in Allah, strike terror in their hearts. Islam does not respect the Jesus of the Bible, the Christian faith, or its followers. It's hostile to all three. And it goes on to say the uh, troubling and threatening Quranic verses about Christians underscore the uncompromising stance of Islam, fostering hostility, contempt, and a call to subjugation. The enduring objective, as consistently upheld by Islam, is the pursuit of absolute global hegemony, a planetary manifestation of Islamic destiny. In other words, they're not just against the Jews, they're against you, they're against the Bible, they're against anything to do with Jesus, and their goal is actually to impose Islam on 
the whole of society. Do you think that's real or is that just made up propaganda? Unfortunately, it's real. It's true. Whether they will succeed or not, we will see because there are all sorts of other agendas which want to impose themselves upon us, but that is a very powerful one which is growing, especially amongst the young and especially amongst people who join in these demonstrations who are being not just protest against Israel, but also against anything to do with Christianity, against our society, and against what we call traditional biblical values. And just conclude my little uh, rant about the state of things <laughs> with a reading from a man called Bassam Tawil. Bassam Tawil, if you might guess from his name, is a Palestinian Arab, and he's a good guy. He understands what's going on. And I'll just read what he says here. The pro-Palestinian demonstrations that have taken place in the US, UK, and some European countries over the past few days are all about hating Israel and Jews, not about helping Palestinians, especially those who've been living under the rule of the Iran-backed Hamas terrorist group in the Gaza Strip since 2007. People who are really pro-Palestinian will be demonstrating for them to have leaders that do not siphon off billions in international aid or who shoot, them, shoot at them when they try to flee for safety who do not store weapons and ammunition in and near their homes and schools. Instead of supporting the eradication of Israel, the demonstrators should be calling for the eradication of Hamas, whose members are holding two million Palestinians as hostages while their leaders are living luxuriously in hotels in Qatar and Turkey. The demonstrators in the US and some European countries have repeated the lies against Israel without assigning one iota of blame to Hamas or even its mastermind, Iran. Such demonstrations achieve only one thing, they embolden terror masters such as Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and Iran that is on the threshold of having nuclear bombs with which to attack or blackmail the West. These demonstrators send a message to the terrorist groups that people in the West happily support violence, terrorism, and the jihad, not only against Israel and Jews, but against Christians, all infidels, Europe, United States, and the West. Those who chant from the river to the sea Palestine will be free or echoing Hamas's charter, which calls for the extermination of Israel and replacing it with an Islamic state. The pro-Palestinian demonstrators on the streets of New York, Washington, and London really wanted, if they really wanted to help the Palestinians, they point their finger at Hamas. Why are they ignoring the fact that Hamas has plunged the Gaza Strip into several wars with Israel since 2007? Why are the demonstrators ignoring the fact that Hamas has turned the Gaza Strip into an arms depot and a base for global jihad and terrorism? Why are they ignoring the fact that instead of building hospitals and schools, Hamas has been manufacturing weapons, building a vast network of tunnels for its men, and smuggling rockets and advanced weaponry into the Gaza Strip? Where were the pro-Palestinian activists when Hamas was arresting, torturing, and murdering Palestinian journalists and human rights advocates? Where were the demonstrators when Hamas was beating and arresting hundreds of Palestinians who took the streets over the past few years to protest the economic hardship and Hamas's financial corruption? Why are the three top Hamas leaders all billionaires living luxuriously in five-star hotels in Qatar? Where are the protesters about that? Those leading Hamas, a terrorist group, are evidently so pleased with the support they're receiving from the streets of Washington, New York, and London, they saw fit to issue a statement thanking the anti-Israel demonstrators. We in the Islamic resistant movement applaud the mass movement, marches, and solidarity events that took place in various American cities and Western capitals, they announced in a statement in late October. Hamas called on the Western demonstrators to escalate all forms of popular resistance against Israel, 
Hamas is in short calling on the Western demonstrators to join them as terrorists in their jihad against Israel and the Jews. Eventually, it will also be against Christians and all infidels. First, the Saturday people, in other words, the Jews, the jihadi staying goes, then the Sunday people, in other words, the Christians. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators masquerade as peace seekers. In fact, they celebrate terrorism and imperialism, Islamic imperialism that seeks forcibly to expand Iran's territorial gains, not only through Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Iraq, but through Yemen, Saudi Arabia, South America, on its way to the big Satan, the United States. Iranians have already infiltrated Venezuela, met in Cuba to discuss confronting Yankee imperialism. Apparently not realizing how destructive these peace-loving demonstrators are to themselves and their free way of life, they do not even seem to see their own deep-seated bigotry and anti-Semitism or bother to think for a minute what life would actually be like for them if they lived in Gaza, Beirut, Damascus or Tehran. It's easy to be a demonstrator in London, Washington or New York. Despite all the claims to the contrary, these are not pro-Palestinian rallies. These are hate marches of people seeking the destruction of Israel and the West. Make no mistake, those who are now protesting against Israel are advocating for a totalitarian way of life, for poverty except for leaders, of course, and for the same sort of utopia now being relished by the citizens of Iran, North Korea, Afghanistan, Cuba, Venezuela, and Gaza. That's not written by... Christian, maybe a Christian actually, I'm not sure. But it's not written by a Jewish person, it's written by a Palestinian Arab. And he's right. And that's what we're up against. And you've got a violent assault which is taking place not just upon Israel, upon the Jewish people, but upon our kind of society and upon the values of traditional biblical Christianity which is taking place all around us. And in the face of this, most of our leaders have actually surrendered, said, okay, we give up, have your way, whether it's the church or the politicians, have a little bit of suspicion about the recent changes in the government, which are another step towards the surrender to all of this. Uh, and certainly in the church, the church is in total confusion, one has to say, this week they've just passed more laws to, uh, to bring in blessings on homosexual marriage, etc. And what you're seeing is the surrender of Western society, and it's pitiful. And it's something which actually we need to resist because we're all going to be caught up in it. And it's going to lead to, A, the judgment of God, and B, the collapse of our society. Now, in the meantime, we can be looking for the coming of the Lord, which we are, but we do have to live somehow in the midst of this and to serve the Lord and to keep his word. And that's a bit of a negative rant, but I just felt, you know, what's happening in the world today is so terrible what's being brought upon our society. How do we stand against it? And we have to come back to the Bible and to the word of God. So that's what we're going to do now. So let's just have a word of prayer as we come to the scriptures. I'm going to read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Lord, we thank you that we do have your word. We thank you that it is a light in the midst of the darkness. We thank you that even as we see the great darkness which is coming upon the nations, including our own nation, including all the countries of the Middle East, including America, Russia, China, we just see this wave of antichrist darkness which is coming upon the world. And Lord, we thank you that we do have the light of the world in the person of our Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. So Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that you'll help me to speak on your word and help those who hear to hear. And we pray that you'll guide us into all truth in the name of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. 
So when it comes to us as individuals, we have to know how are we going to behave, how are we going to cope with this onslaught which is coming upon us. Frankly, we're not going to stop it. I wish we could, but it's going to come, and it's actually prophesied in the Bible as we come towards the second coming of Jesus, that you're going to see the increasing power of Antichrist forces in society. And it's going to come stronger and stronger until Jesus deals with it at his second coming and destroys those who are responsible for it and sets up his kingdom in which there'll be righteousness and peace. But as I was thinking about these two psalms, just spoke to me about kind of how God wants us to live at this time. So let's read them, see what we can learn from them. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the, day, in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Praise the Lord. I'm going to look mainly at Psalm 1, but I will read at the end Psalm 2 and just make a few points from that. So the psalm begins by saying, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Ish in Hebrew. Blessed is the person. And God's saying, no matter what your status in society, what your gender, what your age, what your race, you're going to be blessed if you do what it says in this psalm. And there's assurance from God that this person who follows what God says in this psalm will be blessed or be happy, in fact. The word for blessed is ashray, which can also be translated happy. So you want to have a happy life? Yep, be blessed, do what God says. You may not have everything easy, by the way. You can have, be blessed and be uh, in prison for your faith or in the midst of a war zone, uh, which probably won't make you very happy in the normal sense. But if you have the Lord in your life and you're following him and doing what he says, then you are blessed because you have him in your life. And no matter what the circumstances we live in, if we know the Lord, we can still be happy and be blessed. Remember when I first became a Christian, I met Richard Wurmbrandt, who some of you may have heard of. He was a very famous Messianic Jew, actually, a Christian from Romania. Spent 14 years in prison being tortured for his faith in Romania because he stood up against the communists and stood up for the word of God. And he describes uh, some of the terrible things he went through in prison, uh, some of the tortures and the horrible things, which I won't even try and describe to you. But he says that on one occasion he was in his cell and he danced for joy because of the presence of the Lord, which was so strong there, and he saw the glory of the Lord in the cell. So can you imagine that? There was a man in the midst of all this suffering, all this pain and sorrow, and yet he was dancing for joy before the Lord. Because if you're in the Lord, you're blessed. And no matter what your outward circumstances are, you can be blessed by knowing the Lord in your life. Now in this psalm, it says, uh, first of all, it speaks about some negative things and some positive tells us not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, not to stand in the path of the sinners, not to sit in the seat of the scornful. Negative, but positively to delight in the law of the Lord. Let's have a look at those things first of all in order. Not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Hebrew word for walk there is halach, and halach is, becomes 
a word which is used in Judaism, particularly to speak about halakha, which is the halakha, which is actually the way of life which you follow if you follow the Torah. So the rabbis use the word halakha to describe the teaching, uh, and the, not just the teaching, but also the practice of how you put into practice what God says in his word. So to walk, not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly, uh, but to walk in the ways of the Lord, to conduct yourself in a way which you are keeping the commandments of God, applying the law of God to our lives. Uh, not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I've just described to you a few examples of the counsel of the ungodly. And you can see it all around us in our society, uh, in the nations which are raging against God, uh, rejecting what God says in the scriptures, rejecting the word of God, rejecting redemption through Jesus, the Messiah, and telling us not to live according to God's commands. And don't walk in their ways. Don't be phased by them either. They may be powerful. They may have thousands more people than you and me. But actually, they're doomed. So in the end, we've got one who's much more powerful than they are, who's on our side, who is the God who made us, and the God who's given us the word of God, and has given us salvation through Jesus. And don't let the world's opinions mold your opinions. Don't let its values mold your values, but be molded by what God says in his word. And one has to say that as we live in this society, much of what's taught in the schools, the universities, and in the media, what's broadcast on the TV, on social media, on all the means of communication, is very much the counsel of the ungodly. And so you have to phase out a whole lot of things. Uh, it's much worse now than it was when I was a at school and university, but even after, when I became a Christian, I had to spend about two or three years phasing out some of the things I'd learned at university and getting rid of some of the bad philosophy I'd brought, been taught when I was studying all the cultures and philosophies which I did in my uh, university course. And God wants to bring us to understand the world through his vision, through what he says to us, not through what the world says. And there are plenty of people around you going to give you the counsel of the ungodly. And one has to say that sadly in our time, some of them will be church ministers. And we see today, even this time, that the church has moved so far away from the word of God that its leaders, its bishops, its uh, vicars and so on are teaching things which contradict the word of God. So we have to <coughs> phase some of that out. And when I do the light for last days, I'm constantly getting letters from people saying that they don't teach the word of God in my church. Where can I find a church that teaches the Bible? And they're saying that they... You know, one, one person was telling me that they just had a kind of karaoke session in the church. <laughs> so I said, well, she said, well, that's enough. I, I'm leaving. I can't cope with it anymore. Why don't they teach the Bible? And one has to ask that question. Well, God's going to ask them that question when he stand before him on the day of judgment. But it's a very sad state that we have in so much of visible Christianity today that people are not teaching from the word of God. So don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Second, it says, don't stand in the path of sinners. If you stand in someone's path, you'll find that they are moving you along the path which they want you to go. So if you are, have a crowd of people coming towards you and you're standing in their way, they're going to push you to go with them, aren't they? And don't stand in the path of sinners. And the path in the Bible often speaks about a way, a road, a direction. And a direction which is taking you either towards God or away from God. And the Bible says here that the righteous man, the person who's trying to seek God, is going to stand not in the path of sinners, but in the path of the righteous. And Jesus spoke about a broad road and a narrow road. He 
said that, told us to enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. There are few who find it. And if you're on the road which is leading to life, it's actually a difficult road. And we'd, either, we'd probably rather go down an easy road than a difficult road. And it's easier to follow the crowd to do evil than to follow the Lord to do what is right. You're going against the flow. If you're born like Javad was in a Muslim society, uh, you're kind of pushed to go in that direction. And if you don't go in that direction, life is hard, isn't it, Javad? <laughs> you're going to be facing opposition. If you're born into a society like ours, and especially if you're a young person at university, you're going to have all sorts of influences upon you which are going to be pushing you in a direction which is going away from God. And it's hard to resist it. But God tells us we must resist it because if you go in the path of sinners, they're going to be leading you in the broad road which ultimately leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life. It's better to be on the narrow road even if you're not following the majority than to be on the broad road which is following the majority on the way to death. And then he says, don't sit in the seat of the scornful. And to Peter it says that in the last days scoffers will come. They're going to mock God. They're going to mock creation. They're going to mock the idea of redemption through Christ alone. They're going to mock, above all, the hope of the second coming. And if you go out in the world today and you start speaking about the fact that you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that you believe that Jesus is the one way to God, you believe that Jesus is coming back again to judge the world in righteousness, if you say that publicly, you're going to face a bit of mockery, aren't you? You're going to face people saying, you don't believe that, do you? And undermining your belief. And we find that much of our society today is geared to undermining those principles of basic biblical belief. God creator, God redeemer, God is coming judge in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And they'll mock you, they'll tell jokes about you. You'll find that the entertainment today is, often has uh, mocking of Christianity and in ways which they won't do to other religions. And it results in a rejection of God a society that's scornful of God and of the Bible and of Jesus Christ. So don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't stand in the path of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Interesting, if you look at that, there are three verbs there. Sit, walk, stand. Sit, walk, stand was actually this title of a book by a man called Watchman Nee, which was a commentary on Ephesians. And he noted that taking from, starting from the psalm, then putting it to Ephesians, there are passages there which speak about sit, walk, stand, which are putting you to the opposite, how you should walk with God. Let's have a look at them. Now, I'm just going to read basically these through because all of them are a sermon in themselves. <coughs> but you can see what it's saying. If you are sitting with Christ, you are sitting with Jesus, the Bible says you are seated with him in heavenly places. If you're seated with him in heavenly places, then you're above this world and above the influence of this world and also above the devil who is the ruler of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace <coughs> you have been saved and raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches <coughs> of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So in other words, at one time you were seated 
in this world under the power of the God of this world, who is the devil. When you come to believe in Jesus, you are now transferred from being under the power of the devil to being seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, you might think, well, I'm seated in Bridge Lane Chapel or Bridge Lane Christian Fellowship uh, on a damp Sunday evening. I'm not feeling like I'm seated in heavenly places. Now, you're not actually literally seated in heavenly places at this time, but by faith, if you have faith in Jesus, you are positionally in a place of authority with Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, and he wants to rule through you in your life over the powers of evil. When we come to the final judgment and we are raised up to be seated with Jesus Christ, we will be seated with him in heavenly places for all eternity. But now it's sort of by faith we know that we are there. And he tells us here that we have been firstly dead in trespasses and now made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the most important thing which we can know if we want to stand against the evil one at this time, that we have been made alive through faith in Jesus and that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. And praise God, that's our position. So if you don't feel like you are presently seated in heavenly places, Perhaps you feel that Tony Pierce is going on for too long and you wish he'd stop, but uh, hopefully you don't feel that. <laughs> but, I mean, if that's how you feel, yeah, okay, you can, maybe you have that feeling, but if you understand by faith, if you have a faith in Jesus Christ, that is where you are seated, with Christ in heavenly places. And that's your eternal destiny, to be with him forever in the heavenly realms. Worth having. That's our position by faith in Jesus Christ when we're born again to newness of life and risen with Christ to a place of victory and security in him. And most importantly, in that position, the devil is underneath us. We're not stronger than the devil, but Jesus is. And if we're seated with him in heavenly places, we've got one on our side who is stronger than all the powers of darkness which are around us. Okay, our second verb, which was sit, walk, stand, walk. <coughs> we don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. But you've not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus." that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, but do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear, dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now again, that's the sole sermon in that passage. I'm not going to give it. You can just read those words and see how they apply to you. Some ways, 
better just even just to read them and to ask how did that apply to my life. But notice he speaks here about walking, walking in newness of life. Comes back to what we were reading about in the psalm, walking with God, following, putting his commandments into practice in our lives. It's all part of the new life we have in Jesus, and it's something which is available to us by the Holy Spirit. Third verb was stand. Don't stand in the path of sinners. Come to Ephesians is actually not standing in the path of sinners, but not standing, but standing against the one who is responsible for the sinners, who is the devil. Ephesians chapter six, very well-known passage. Again, I won't comment on it too much. Just read what it says. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this, and with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Some pretty good counsel there on how to stand for the Lord, isn't it? And how to stand against the one who is against us, who is the devil. And if we stand against the devil and against his evil powers, and we put on that armor of God, all of those things are symbolic, if you like, of the new life we have in Jesus, the uh, gospel of peace, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, so on. They all speak about what we can put on as we believe in Jesus, those things which are available to us in the new life in Jesus. And the person who does this is going to be delighting in the law of God, delighting in the word of God has given us in the Bible. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And God wants us to dwell upon him and upon his word. <clears throat> it says also about meditating on the word of God. Now, of course, this psalm was written in the time of the Torah. Now we have the new covenant, uh, the living word. And we are to believe the Torah, but we also are to see that it has been uh, supplemented and given the new covenant by which we're to live. So if we're meditating on the word of God, we're thinking, meditating on the whole word of God, including, of course, the new covenant. And to meditate, it speaks about meditating on the word. So what does meditate mean? Uh, not just to read it, but to think about it, to ask God what it means, how it applies to our lives. When we read the scriptures, take a bit of time, not just to skim through it, but to read it and to meditate, ask what it means. How does God want to apply this scripture to my life? It's actually the very opposite of transcendental meditation, Eastern meditation. You go to Eastern meditation, you're told to actually empty your mind and let thoughts flow into it. Uh, tap into your inner chai, the life force within. Believe that God dwells within you as you and tap into that God within you. That's a delusion. You won't find God that way. We're not to meditate and to empty our minds. We're actually to fill our minds with the word of God and with the look out not to ourselves, but look up to Jesus, the Messiah, who is the one mediator between us and God, and to fill our minds with the Bible, with his revelation. 
and let the word of God actually guide us into the new life which he wants us to live. In Romans chapter 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants us to renew our minds, to change our minds, to change our way of thinking. It's part of what it is to be born again. When you accept Jesus Christ, you come with a whole lot of baggage from your previous life, which you picked up. When you believe in Jesus, God wants to change your way of thinking so that you accept his way. You allow him to transform your life, transform your way of thinking. And how do we do this? We do it by looking unto Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. So look to Jesus. Think about him. Read the word and meditate on the word of God. Paul says we're to pray without ceasing and know that the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And the more that we know about the word of God, especially about the Messiah, about Yeshua, and the meaning of his first coming and the second coming, then what we see in the world around us is going to, in one sense, pair into insignificance, but also he's going to explain it to us so that we understand what's happening and we see the end, which is the coming of the Lord. And we'll be like that tree planted by the waters, which he speaks of here, with its roots going down into the stream. Compare this with the passage in Jeremiah chapter 17. Where Jeremiah 17, verse 5, it says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose arm whose heart departs from the Lord. He shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land that is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit." Remember, the Bible was written in the Middle East, not in England, where we have abundance of rain. And in the Middle East, often you have times when there is no rain. And the tree in the barren land, in the desert with no water, is going to wither and die. And if you look in the world today, the tree which is planted by the waters of Islam, New Age, occult, even compromised Christianity, is going to wither and die. Because it can't feed itself, it doesn't have any life to feed it with. The tree that's planted by the waters is going to live. Its roots are going to go down into the waters and it'll suck up the water which will give it life. Uh, one of the pictures of this is a tree by the waters even in conditions of drought. And in Israel, you may know there's the wadis which are the streams which uh, flow with water in the wet season and sometimes they dry up but they still have water underneath them. And if you have the tree planted by the wadi, uh, even in the dry season, it can put its roots down and get the, the water up so that it can be fed with life. And that's a picture of us, if you like, that we live in a time when there's a very dry season spiritually and all around us there is things which are 
contrary to the word of God, if we put our roots down into the Lord, even in the midst of this dry and barren land which we're in, then we can suck up the water and it produce fruit in our lives. <clears throat> in the book of Amos, it says in the last days there's going to be a famine of hearing of the word of God. Oh, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing of the words of God. That's why we preach the word of God in this place. We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching what God says in his word. And we don't want to have a famine of the word of God, we want to have abundance of the word of God. If you want to have that life in you, you have to put your roots down into the Lord by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. Uh, we need to learn how to feed ourselves from the living word of God and the living waters of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. Remember that in John chapter 7, Jesus said, uh, verse 37, on the last day, that great day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, of the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those who believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus has been glorified, the Holy Spirit has been given, and by the Spirit and by the Word we can feed upon the Word of God and upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with his Holy Spirit and able to meditate on him and to stand against the ungodly forces in the world today. Uh, Paul understood this, and he was able to prosper in all circumstances, to bring forth fruit for the Lord, no matter whether he's in good or bad circumstances. And God actually wants that for us. It's very important that we understand that, because, to be honest, personally, our circumstances at the present time are not too bad, are they? Anybody here starving? Anybody here broke? No money? No food? Okay. So basically, you've got the basics of life. So although we complain about what's going on, really, most of us actually live quite a comfortable life, to be honest, including me. Uh, but it could change. And will we still be praising and trusting the Lord if things change? That's the challenge. And, you know, we look at people in the different countries, like in Ukraine and and in Israel, in Gaza, and we see terrible suffering, and we think, how would we stand if we were in that situation? And God wants us to stand because we have that living relationship with God through the Bible. And it's the only way we're going to stand. And just to conclude on Psalm 1, uh, Paul spoke about prospering in all circumstances. In Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things of good report, if there's any virtue, if anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, <coughs> these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. 
Not that I speak in regard of need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So is that your testimony? Can you do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Can you know God's rejoice in the Lord when you abound, but also when you're abased, when things are not going so well? That's the challenge which God wants to put before us. And we need to know how to rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances and in whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Very important spiritual preparation for the last days. To rejoice in all circumstances and to know Christ who strengthens me. Okay, um, I will just read briefly Psalm 2 and mention one or two things from it. So Psalm 2, remember that at the end of Psalm 1 he says, The ungodly will not stand. Then he says in the beginning of Psalm 1, so it's like Psalm 2 follows on from Psalm 1. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Okay, let's just stop at those three verses and look at them. What are they saying? Saying that at some time the nations are going to rage against God. The people are going to plot a vain thing. And you see the kings of the earth, the rulers of the world, coming together to take counsel. And they're taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. So these rulers are against God. They're also against his anointed. So who's his anointed? Look in the Hebrew, the word for anointed there is Mashiach, says Mishichi, against his anointed, Mishichi, sorry. <clears throat> they say, let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So what are their bonds and their cords, which they're trying to cast away? It's the Bible, God's word. God's word, which restrains evil, gives us commandments, which tells us what we should not do and what we should do. People don't want to keep the commandments, so they say, let's chuck them out. Let's say you can have gay marriage, you can uh, have a jihad, you can fight against Christians if you want, you can uh, be anti-Semitic, you can be anti-God, and you can do what you want, as long as you don't follow Jesus. Let's cast their cords away from us. And basically, that's what the nations of the world are saying to the gay, whether it's the Western nations, whether it's Russia, China, the Muslim nations, they're all coming against God in some different way. And they're casting away the cords which God wants to give, which is his restraining, restraint on evil through his commandments and through the Holy Spirit. What does God think about them? Do you think they're being very clever? No, it says actually God has them in derision. He's laughing at them. Because although they may be having lots of uh, pomposity and standing up in big conferences and saying we're the big people who are making all the decisions for you, God sees their days coming and he's going to speak to them in his wrath, in his anger, and distress them in deep, deep displeasure. <coughs> Which reminds us that there is a day coming of the wrath of God. John the Baptist said, free the wrath to come. And it's kind of a message for us today, because there is a wrath of God coming. Another idea which actually people don't like to think about. They don't want you to tell 
telling them that there is a wrath of God, there is a punishment for sin. Uh, another idea which if you put it out in the public domain, they will say, oh no, that's being very judgmental. You mustn't say that. But there is a wrath of God coming. Revelation chapter 6 ends with the four horse, begins with the four horsemen of the apocalypse going out in the beginning of the tribulation period and ends with the final events of the last great tribulation when it says the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains <coughs> and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great is the, day, the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the Bible makes it very clear that there is a day of wrath that is coming. It's coming at the end of the great tribulation when Jesus is going to come back and judge the world in righteousness. And the Bible, Revelation in particular, describes the last day's judgments on the earth, the terror of the Lord. And it speaks about the great men and also the little men and people of the earth saying to the Lord, let the rocks fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And those who continue in unbelief and in rejecting the Lord will actually face ultimately the wrath of God. <coughs> They'll be excluded from the congregation of the righteous. So the Bible is telling us that there's a way of life and there's a way of death and that Jesus is the way to life. And Psalm 2 then goes on to assure us of the coming victory of the Lord. Next verse in Psalm 2 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has set to me, said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Notice there it says, God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now from the point of view of the psalmist, this was two or three thousand years in the future, the event happening. But as far as God's concerned, it's already happened. God sees the end from the beginning and he says, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I know the end result of all of this. It's going to be that Jesus, my king, is going to rule on the hill of Zion from Jerusalem and bring peace and justice to the world for a thousand years, which will precede the eternal state in which he will have for all believers in the new heavens and the new earth. So as far as God is concerned, that is something which is certain. It's going to happen. Interestingly, he also says that to this one who is set on the hill of Zion, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does that tell you of? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Son of God. He says, I'm going to give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. When Jesus comes again, he's going to rule over the earth and he's going to rule over the nations. And he's going to, God's going to give them to him for a possession. He's going to take them away from all of the antichrist forces which will be raiding against God in the last days. And he's going to break those antichrist forces with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. If you look in Revelation chapter 19, it says that Jesus is going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule the nations with a rod of iron. What does that mean? It means that he's going to rule the nations as the king with all power. And you won't be able to vote him out of power. 
You won't be able to have an election and say, well, I don't like this. I'm going to have another king. No. Once Jesus is king, he is king. And he's already king. At the present time, he's the king in the hearts of those who believed in him. When he comes again, he's going to be the king over all the earth. And if you don't believe in him, you won't be in the kingdom. It's as simple as that. If you do believe in him, you have a future in the eternal kingdom. So you have a glorious future and a glorious hope. But he's going to rule the nations then. He's going to assert his authority. And as he asserts his authority, he's going to stamp out all the practices which are sinful and are destroying. It says in Isaiah that he's going to cause the nations to beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and not to study war anymore. What's the biggest curse on the face of the earth today? It's wars and troubles causing oppression and suffering to millions of people. When Jesus comes back, no, no, you will not fight in wars, you won't have armies, uh, you will not study war anymore. Praise the Lord. And the psalm concludes with a call to people now to be wise and serve the Lord. Take his instruction, read his word. Last verses of the psalm read, Therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. If you're going to be wise, whether you're a king or not a king, or just a simple person, then you're going to be instructed and serve the Lord with fear and with trembling. You're going to accept what God says in his word. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says in the psalm, in Proverbs. So those who have wisdom are going to accept what God says. Those who are not wise, who are foolish, are going to reject what God says. And in the end, they will perish in the way when God's wrath is kindled but a little. Then we have this curious phrase, kiss the sun. What does that mean? Uh, again, it uses the word for sun. It actually uses a different word here. It uses the word bar instead of ben. But it's speaking again about the sun. So who's this sun? And you have this mystery, if you like, in the Old Testament. that You have a number of references to the sun of God. One in Proverbs. have one here. And it's telling us that God has a sun. The, not that he beget a sun, but that he is the sun who is the revealed person of God who became man in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. He's always existed. He's not a second in command. He is part of the triunity of God. But he says we should kiss the son. Now, actually, the word kiss there also has an implication of worship. So in the end, what he's saying here is worship the son. Worship the Lord. Worship God through Jesus the Messiah. And if you do that, then you're going to be blessed because you're going to put your trust in him. And be blessed by trusting in Yeshua, the Messiah, because you'll have a hope in both his first coming and his second coming. First coming when he came to redeem us through his blood on the cross. Second coming when he's coming to judge the world in righteousness and set up his messianic kingdom. So believe on the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, and you'll be happy. Ashrei, blessed in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's just have a word of prayer before we hand back to Andy for the last hymn. Lord, we do thank you for Yeshua. We thank you that you are the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that though we see all the chaos and the confusion in the world around us, we have a great hope in the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to feed on your word, to meditate on your word, to understand it, to put it into practice in our lives, and to walk with you in newness of life through faith in Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen.